Well, good morning, church family. What an enjoyable time of worship together as a family. There are many songs we know by heart, but none more sweet than those. Well, three weeks ago, uh, Pastor Patrick introduced our theme for 2024. Uh, we kept it simple this year, God's church. And that really flows out of 1 Timothy 3.15. And we picked that theme um, very deliberately. Uh, our, our aim as the leadership of EBC is to root and orient everything that we say and do as a congregation uh, into and around that one theme. Uh, despite how it might feel to some of you at times, we're not just making it up as we go along. Um, there is uh, some deliberateness, a lot of deliberateness uh, into what we say and do as a church. So uh, when Patrick asked me to fill in, it just made sense to preach on that theme, to preach on the topic of the church. Uh, I don't have to tell you that we live in an age where the living church of God is seen by many as being antiquated, uh, old-fashioned, out of date, and thus out of touch with society. Uh, and as such, since it is supposedly antiquated, it's no longer considered necessary. Uh, amidst various announcements of individuals, usually famous figures, deconstructing their Christian faith, that's the buzzword, uh, in light of that, it's apparently become very fashionable to now follow God out of the church. And for those not so willing to abandon the church, there's been a flurry of attempts to redefine who the church is and what she ought to do. Unfortunately, such a quest is ultimately driven by goals that are focused less upon what God desires and more upon what the world insists upon and demands. So all things considered, we're left with a question. Uh, what is our hope? What is our hope as Emmanuel Baptist Church? And really behind that question is the other question, uh, what do we do if we are out of date and antiquated and no longer necessary? Do we just lock the doors and just go home? Well, obviously, I think you would agree with this statement, no church is perfect. Amen? Not too loud. But. And, and this church, our church, as much as it pains me to say, love it as we may, is not a perfect church. Nevertheless, as we look to God's word, particularly in the New Testament, we can identify certain key factors that are absolutely essential for any congregation of believers to truly be functioning as a local assembly of God's universal church. So as we sit here on this day uh, in the life of this particular church, EBC, uh, well over a century beyond its inception, I want to take us back this morning, to the beginning, uh, but not just to the start of this church uh, uh, around the uh, beginning of the 20th century. Rather, I want to take us all the way back to the beginning of the church in the first century AD. This morning, by tracing a divine process that occurred over 2,000 years ago in history, we are able to consider uh, what I've deemed our only hope as the church uh, three identifiable and intertwined pillars that uphold and give shape to God's vision and identity for his own people. Uh, so 
Turn with me to the book of Acts. Book of Acts, beginning in chapter one. And allow me to set the scene for us as you turn there. Uh, Acts is really a follow-up to Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke was the close companion of Paul, uh, a traveling companion, uh, most likely his uh, on-site physician. And the book of Acts that he's written is an account, really, of Christ beyond the cross. And the book itself opens in the city of Jerusalem, first century A.D., uh, essentially to set the scene, uh, borrowing from the words of 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, uh, Christ has died for our sins. He's been buried, uh, raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he's appeared to Cephas. And now here in this scene that we're going to look at this morning, uh, to the 12. Uh, having presented himself to many of his disciples over a period of 40 days, the resurrected Jesus uh, now offers some parting words to his apostles, after which he will ascend into heaven. Uh, look at Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Luke writes this, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And, and that was in keeping with what Jesus had guaranteed them in the upper room. Uh, you can go back, John 14 through 16, uh, a lengthy passage, but uh, sprinkled throughout that was Jesus promising uh, his disciples that they would not be alone, that this was a good thing that he leave. Uh, continuing verse six, so when they had come together, Luke says, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In their mind, they're thinking a literal earthly kingdom, even then, uh, in accordance with the Old Testament prophecy. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Uh, what a promise and what it would have been like to, to be a, just a witness within the room to, to hear that said. Jump ahead to chapter 2 of Acts. Acts 2, verse 1. Ten days later, we read this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, now Pentecost was one of the three annual Jewish festivals. When that day had arrived, they were all together in one place. Now you have the 12 apostles uh, plus 120 other believers. And Luke says, verse two, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Uh, equally a, an incredible event. Oh, to be a fly on the wall that day. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And thus, we might say, began the early church. Uh, what I read to us really introduces that first pillar, the, the pillar which is the power of the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, again, this was what Jesus had guaranteed his disciples back in the upper room, in John 16, he said, it is to your advantage, verse 7, that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. In other words, he, will, he, he won't manufacture his own message. He won't go rogue, you might say. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so even in John 16, we see that the ministry of God's spirit among God's people includes uh, things like conviction as well as guidance. And the giving of that spirit was in keeping with God's original promise to the people of Israel. The promise of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, wherein the Lord says, I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, can I say it? What a promise. You see, it was the Holy Spirit who had served as the source and power of Jesus' own earthly ministry. Uh, To quote Matthew 12 Beginning in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, that, Jesus, that being Jesus, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. At the outset of Christ's own ministry, Luke 3, we read, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him and bodily form like a dove, representing in a sense a a spirit of gentleness. And later in Luke 4 verse 1, we're told Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Verse 14, and after being tempted, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And in light of that, men and women, let us remind us this morning that our receiving of God's Holy Spirit as believers is absolutely fundamental to being a genuine follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. John 3, 5, truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can even say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That's a confession of Christ's lordship. And as those first century believers first began to gather together, it was that same spirit who would ultimately serve as the spark that fueled the fire that was the early church. In fact, as a side note, three different times in the book of Acts, Peter usually refers to the Holy Spirit as a gift. Unfortunately, in many churches, it's a gift that remains unopened, you might say. Not even considered, just kind of sitting off to the side. And that being said, there are so many lousy substitutes for this pillar. So many lousy substitutes, trade-offs for the power of the Holy Spirit. Some subtle, some not so subtle. Think of things like Sunday morning messages that appeal to the supposed free will of man. 
The sort of preaching that makes us dependent upon our own efforts and abilities rather than ultimately dependent upon God's power and ability to work in and through us. Think of substitutes like worship, dramatic man-centered songs with nothing less than poor theology. The songs that are often utilized in order to manipulate human emotions. They usually begin with catchphrases like, Spirit, you are welcome in this place. I hate to tell you, he was there before you even arrived. (laughs) Or endeavors at a leadership level to try and provide some sort of new spiritual experience for everyone who comes through the door. Manufactured human attempts to make it appear like God is at work, either in a person or a group or a setting, when the truth of the matter is he really isn't. And by that, I mean the evidence is of what's occurring don't line up with what we see in scripture. Or even the lousy substitute of overemphasis upon trying to somehow spark a fresh revival of God with really no genuine repentance, no confession of sin. Even the willingness to throw that term repentance around with any attempt to try and define what does that mean? A.W. Tozer said this, he said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, Tozer says, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. Men and women, if we are to do God's work as God's people, then we are utterly dependent upon God's power, which is granted to us through God's divine spirit. In order for God's church to to be what he intends for it to be, it's not enough to simply have a loving pastor or a dynamic preacher or even some captivating powerhouse of a leader, maybe borrowed from the business world. I loved what John MacArthur said in reference to the title of this book we're looking at, the book of Acts. It's historically known as the Acts of the Apostles, but MacArthur says this. He says, Acts does feature the notable figures in the early years of the church, especially Peter and Paul, but the book could more properly be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, since his sovereign superintending work was far more significant than that of any man. It was the Spirit's directing, controlling, and empowering ministry that strengthened the church and caused it to grow in numbers and spiritual power and influence. Pillar number one, what is the hope of the church, even our church? It's the power of the promised Holy Spirit. Pillar number two, the preaching of the resurrected Christ. The preaching of the resurrected Christ. Look back at Acts 2, pick up in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, essentially visitors to the city who had come for the festival. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered, Luke says because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Uh, Really the effect of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
Jump down to verse 12, it says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to each other, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, Well, they're filled with new wine. Verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. That's quite a statement. That's a, that's a great opening line for a sermon. And what happens next? Simply, Peter preaches Christ. He preaches Christ. Now, if you don't know who Peter is, there's one thing you absolutely need to know about him. There's a reason why he's known as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. Uh, throughout his early years while following Jesus as a disciple, it would seem that whenever the spotlight pointed his way, Peter usually ended up just embarrassing himself. I mean, he was hardly the guy you wanted holding the microphone, particularly on such a big day as Acts 2. But with that being said, in his sermon recorded here in this passage, under the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, the apostle Peter doesn't put his foot in his mouth. Rather, he exposits the Old Testament scriptures, thereby explaining how Jesus Christ was and is the promised Messiah of Israel. Again, look at verse 22 of Acts 2. Peter preaches, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, here's the punchline, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What an incredible statement. What a message to have heard. And what was their response to hearing all of this? Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, when they're hearing the words coming out of Peter's mouth, Luke says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It goes from what does this mean to what shall we do? And what happens? Well, it would seem they come to their spiritual senses. Uh, even more, it says, cut to the heart. That's what happens when the Spirit of God opens people's eyes to the truth of the gospel, doesn't it? it cut, they, they're cut to the heart. And that's precisely what happens when sinners finally see Christ for who he is. Not outward emotion. Not just that, but genuine internal heart-searing conviction. In fact, Peter's sermon is so powerful that you might notice rather than him making an altar call, his hearers actually call for the response themselves. Brothers, what shall we do? In other words, tell us how to respond, Peter. <laughs> how do we react to everything you've just said? And through Peter's spirit-fueled message, those Jews are finally able to see the blood of their own Messiah on their own hands. And they're immediately compelled to respond. How could they not? 
In verse 38, Peter said to them, he answers the question, what shall we do? He said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I can't pass by that verse without declaring that that is indeed the goal of every Bible preacher, every gospel preacher, that everyone who hears the message would acknowledge their pride, they'd confess their sin, they'd bow their knee to the Lord Jesus, they would cling to him and his saving work, and they would receive God's spirit as a sign of his or her spiritual conversion. That's the goal. That's not always the result. But that being said, listen, that cannot happen until they hear of their sinful state and they receive the blessed hope of their resurrected Savior. And again, similarly to the first pillar, there are lousy substitutes for this pillar. Lousy. In terms of the preaching of the resurrected Christ, instead, sometimes in some churches we get what I guess you might call Sunday morning story time, where the audience has their hearts tickled or warmed with pithy, spiritual-sounding anecdotes. I mean, do we still, is there still chicken soup for the soul? Wouldn't be surprised if there's a 21st century version of that. There's the substitute of the misleading message of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life with no real mention of sin, no speaking of judgment. Just God loves you. He just wants to do great things in your life. He wants to help you live your best life now. Therein lies the heralding of some self-improvement God who supposedly exists to help us live and, and, and fulfill all of our wildest dreams. That's why he's there. He just wants to make you happy, give you a fulfilled life. Or the substitute of the kind of preaching that panders to human desire and only works to feed our human self-love and narcissism. I realize I'm stepping on toes here, but you've heard this sort of preaching. It's, it's what you might call Stuart Smalley preaching, right? You're good enough, you're smart enough, and people like you. Really, it's any message other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. You throw out Jesus, you've thrown out the heart of the gospel. Because he said, and I might add, only he could say, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Man, women, that is absolute exclusivity. I mean, you can wrestle with that all you want. There's, there's no way around that. No one. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. In fact, Acts 4, another sermon, Peter proclaims, verse 12, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's not some great celestial pinwheel to spin, and it might land on Jesus, it might not. No, there's salvation in no one else. Only Christ saves. Only in and through Jesus Christ can you and I be born again, John 3. 
And it is only through preaching Christ that God's church can be built up. Colossians 1.28, right behind me. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we might tickle ears? So we might draw a crowd? No, so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Pillar number two, the preaching of the resurrected Christ. Brings us to pillar three, what I've termed the production of our sovereign God and Father. The production of our sovereign God and Father. Continuing his address, Peter states, verse 39, For the promise is for you and your children, that being the Jews, and for all who are far off, that being the Gentiles, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Plain and simple, that is how sinners are saved. That is how the church is built. The Lord calls to himself. In other words, when we preach Christ, we issue the call, the invitation goes out, and by God's sovereign grace, the lost are found. The blind are given sight. Despite what is so often thought today, the church is not built and maintained by appealing to the neutral will of man. You know, you, you want God, I know it, I see it in your eyes. No, rather what we see in Scripture is that apart from the intervening work of God, there is none who truly understand who God is or really who they are before God as a lost sinner condemned by his judgment. Uh, Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. That speaks to the depravity of the human mind. Paul says, no one seeks for God. That speaks to the depravity of the human heart. He says, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. That speaks to the depravity of the human will. Depraved, depraved, depraved. That is the state of man apart from the intervening work of Christ. In summary, there's zero spiritual comprehension of God. And there are zero divine affections for God. If God doesn't move, there's nothing that the preacher can draw upon or, or call to. A man is focused on himself. In fact, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned really discerned by the illuminating work of that first pillar, the powerful Holy Spirit. John 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, there's no exceptions to the rule. And all of those passages and others like them continually speak to the sovereign dynamic of divine salvation, i.e. the means by which people are saved. And continuing in Acts 2, verse 41, we read, so those who received his word were baptized, uh, really baptized as an external sign of an internal reality. And there were added that day, either into church fellowship or membership, there were added about 3,000 souls. I mean, this is key. The, the basis of our fellowship as the church, the basis of our fellowship as this church, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, 
it, it really hinges on our salvation, right? God is bringing sinners like us to himself into his family. We too were lost and are now found. But would you please notice on the heels of being saved, those 3,000 souls are immediately integrated into the church, right? Luke says they were added. Uh, they're not left to just float out into spiritual space. They don't remain disconnected. They don't receive the gospel and then stay at home even though they have perfect health. They're added to the church. And, and, and this brings us to the, what you might call the human practices within God's production of the church. These core commitments, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Here we begin to read the primary functions and activities of the early church, these core practices and commitments that gave shape to their fellowship as believers. Uh, commitment number one, the apostles' teaching or, or doctrine, that alone emphasizes the fact that the preaching of God's word is absolutely foundational to the life and health of the church. That's why Paul said to Timothy, first Tim, uh, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. I, I charge you. It's, go back and read it. It's one of the strongest charges Paul could possibly give. I command you. This is not an option, Timothy. Preach the word. That is the primary means of being built up as Christians, intently listening to the preached word, being committed to hearing and, and studying sound doctrine, right? Not skits, not musical productions, not, not spiritual entertainments, and certainly not movie clips. It's the preaching of Christ and him crucified and resurrected. That's what we read in the scripture and and did not Paul say that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work? What else does that? Commitment number two, fellowship. Uh, the title church itself originates from the Greek word ekklesia. They're, they've been called out, but they're called out so that they might be called in called into koinonia, called into fellowship and, and communion, called out of darkness into his marvelous light and then added to the church. And everything that God has done, he's done for the sake of, of that unity, of that fellowship. A commitment number three, breaking of bread. Again, a, a visible sign and expression of their invisible fellowship. Uh, communion being one of the two ordinances left for us by Jesus. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in remembrance and in celebration. And the fourth commitment really Luke identifies is the prayers. I mean, that, that should be an obvious one to us, right? Public prayers offered to God by his unified people. Uh, if you'll allow me two John MacArthur quotes, he says prayers are the nerves that move the muscles of omnipotence. We need prayer. We ought, we ought to be a praying church. There's all these core commitments. And the response of those who encountered this first church. I mean, you want to use this as a litmus test. Let's see the result. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, Luke says. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
They're in awe because they see the proofs that God is at work. Verse 44, and all who believed were together. Of course they're together, right? After all, there was only one church. There wasn't Second Baptist or Third Lutheran or, or Fourth Presbyterian, right? It was, this was it. And they're all together, Luke says, and, and had all things in common. What a, what a reminder that the church is indeed a, a divine supernatural partnership. And he adds, verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I mean, that's what the church was doing when it first began, caring for one another. There's no division, no hierarchy, just mutual loving care, right? If one's suffering, Paul says, all suffer. If, if one's honored, all rejoice together. Oh, to be a part of a church like that. These early believers didn't come to church to be served. They came to be served. Or excuse me, they didn't come to be served. They came to serve and to do so sacrificially. I mean, this, this church, read about the church of Acts. It is beyond generous. In verse 46, Luke says, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And then here we arrive at this key summary statement. Please don't miss it. Middle of verse 47, Luke says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This one verse right here, just this half of a verse is so often overlooked. Nevertheless, it is the key to our understanding of how God sovereignly grows the church. There's no tips and techniques. There's no gathering of the apostles to come up with some creative bait and switch techniques. Again, no seeker sensitive strategies, just simply doing God's church God's way and, and, and being God's church in the way that God has designed it to be. And after having done so, entrusting him with the results. Again, can I speak of the lousy substitutes for this pillar? Programs, for instance, overnight growth. Charismatic teachers and leaders who've proven their ability to draw a crowd. The employment of strategies that trick the newcomer can even be things like a focus upon simply meeting felt needs. Whatever it is, we just want to meet your needs, whether it's right or wrong. And doing so knowing that we all are intrinsically wired for that sort of thing. Even attempts to make ourselves the hottest show in the community by regularly entertaining our audience. Let's just do whatever we need to do to, to pack the seats. Right? That's the important thing. Let's just have a full house. Doesn't matter the condition of their souls. And all of them, all of them fall miserably short. Why? Because God's church cannot be built unless God himself chooses to intervene amidst each and every sinner's state of spiritual deadness. What is the church other than the assembly, the called out ones who were once in darkness, 
and really in a state of deadness. Ephesians 2, again, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You read on in that passage, there's not just a a reconciliation with God, there's a reconciliation with others. How powerful is that? But it is God who's doing that work, not us. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful work, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, writes this. He says, while we must always remember that it, it is our responsibility to proclaim salvation, we must never forget that it is God who saves. It is God who brings men and women under the sound of the gospel. And it is God who brings them to faith in Christ. Our evangelistic work, Piper says, is the, excuse me, Packer says, is the instrument that he uses for this purpose. But the power that saves is not in the instrument. Rather, it is in the hand of the one who uses the instrument. Let us never forget that it was Jesus who said, I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That not only is an incredible promise, but every one of us, particularly at a leadership level, should breathe an enormous sigh of relief. I will build my church, Christ says. but they're not coming, Lord. I will build my church. But they don't like the message. I will build my church. But the gospel's offensive. I'll build my church. But we have a pandemic, Lord. I'll build my church. I will build my church, Jesus says and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In closing, Mark Dever says this. He says, no congregation's hope is finally tied to a building, a meeting, a pastor, or even other members of the congregation. A congregation's hope, our hope as Emmanuel Baptist Church, must be reserved for the God who saves. There are a number of false hopes, lousy substitutes that we can have as we consider the current state and future progress of the church as we know it. So again, I ask, what is our hope that we will endure as God's church? The answer, it lies in emulating the church in the book of Acts. That's the answer, that's the hope. Emulating God's church done God's way. Ultimately, our hope rests in the triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The church described in Acts 2 and beyond is the kind of church that I think every one of us would want to be a part of. Don't you agree? What is more, it's the kind of church that the Lord chooses to bless. And so for us as a congregation, we must do and be what God calls us to do and be. And in turn, we must ultimately entrust the results to the Lord. 
No tricks, no human emotion or manipulation or coercion. Let's rely upon the power of the Spirit. Let's preach Christ and let's entrust the results to God. That's our hope. Let's pray. Father God, we can rejoice because you are indeed faithful. And we know you're faithful because we ourselves stand as witnesses of these truths. And we ourselves have been called into the fellowship of your great son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You are indeed faithful to do what you have promised to do. Help us to do that and to be that, Lord, rather than trying to reinvent reinvent the church and thereby making a mess of things. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Christ. What a joy it is to worship him. He is the longing of our hearts, Lord. We long to see his face, to see him as he truly is. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for this church. Though we are not perfect, we believe that you are at work here and so we want to be a part of it with every fiber of our being, Lord. Unite us with other churches and remind us, Lord, that you will indeed build the church. We can trust you to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.